guys, welcome back to GeoSpeak. Today our podcast will focus on water scarcity and how it affects the re- regions of the world. Water scarcity is the lack of sufficient available water resources to meet the demands of water usage within a region. It already affects every continent and around 2.8 billion people around the world at least one month out of every year. More than 1.2 billion people lack access to clean drinking water. Joining us today is Dr. Ken Runkle on his experiences with water scarcity. Dr. Runkle is a licensed environmental health practitioner and studied at McMurray College, then getting his PhD at the University of Illinois Springfield. Today we will focus on his trip to Liberia to help evaluate the quality of the water in order to help the life in that region. Alright, so hi Dr. Runkle, how are you today? I'm doing just fine, thank you. Alright, so we'll just get right into it. Our first question is, when you first arrived in Liberia, did it look like you imagined? Well, yes, it did, and and in some ways it didn't. Uh, First of all, it did in the sense that uh, the climate, the coastline, the trees, these were all things I'd seen photos of before I went, and so I recognized those things when I arrived. But I was not prepared for the lack of infrastructure, uh, roads, power. I mean, I heard stories, but to actually witness it was was something. And the poverty at West Point, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, one of the most impoverished areas in Liberia was certainly striking. All right. So our next question is, how did you communicate with people in Liberia? Well, Liberia is a country that speaks English. Now, there are certain slang terms. There are certain phrases that uh, we kind of had to learn from each other. Um, we both found that if we spoke slower, uh, we Americans tend to speak rather fast, and so do Liberians. And uh, when you're not used to hearing all the phrases and emphases that people have in their speech, uh, we just decided it was much easier if we just all slowed down, and we were able to communicate very well. That's good. Most noticeable difference between your culture and theirs? Hmm, most noticeable difference? Well, I would have to say that we take for granted uh, certain things, and I'm going to use the word infrastructure because I don't know how else to say it, but, you know, for us to have internet, for us to have electrical power, for us to have public water and public sewage, these are all things that we for generations have taken for granted here in America, and when you get to a country that's had civil war for so many years, like Liberia did, and this infrastructure is simply wiped out. Uh, it's very patchwork. It, it, it just leads to a different kind of cultural uh, uh, environment. And so uh, I think that was the most striking thing. I mean, people are people. People, people love their country. People love each other. People are friendly. But, but the cultural difference I saw the most was simply the difference in infrastructure and how people had to live and adapt to that. Did you participate in the construction of the wells? No, the wells were already constructed. Um, After the war, uh, many groups came in, uh, a lot of not-for-profit groups, uh, a lot of churches, things like that, came in and installed wells in many places in Liberia. Interestingly, water is plentiful in Liberia, but quality water and getting to that quality water was not. And the reason was is because people had gotten to where they were using public water, especially in cities, and when 
that public water system was wiped out by the war, suddenly people had to go to wells. They had to go to other ways of getting water. And so um, that led to a very important shift. And without the resources to install those wells, Liberia was very reliant on outside help. And so these wells were installed, but and they got to water. But no one, at least uh, in the wells that I had, I investigated, had actually considered or gone into the quality of the water. So that was my focus. Hmm. What were the most Im- significant impacts of lack of health care on a local and global scale? Well, I'm going to delineate here a little bit between health care and health prevention. Uh, when it comes to drinking water, um, that's more of a public health thing where what you're doing is you're trying to prevent adverse health effects by having quality water, by having proper sanitation. When it comes to health care, that's what we're looking at when people are sick. And so uh, when I was there, uh, the health care was very bogged down by people with malaria. Um, When I visited a couple hospitals, uh, I would say the great majority of the patients present were people who were suffering from malaria. Now, a few years after I was there, uh, there was an Ebola outbreak in Liberia, and that overwhelmed the healthcare system. And so, um, you know, healthcare is going to be whatever it is based on what illnesses are present in a population. And so a public health perspective is to try to do prevention on the front end so people don't require treatment by healthcare. <laughs> As you studied existing programs addressing healthcare access, what did you feel these programs do well and what do you think they should do better? I think when it came to healthcare and treatment, I think people they did very well. I mean, malaria, all you can do for malaria once someone has it is treat the symptoms and provide uh, comfort and support. Uh, when it comes to Ebola, very similar. People already have the disease. You're trying to keep it from spreading. You're trying to uh, prevent other people from being exposed to contaminated fluids, those kinds of things. And so I think health care has done a pretty good job in Liberia, even given the conditions that they have to deal with. But I think that the public health aspects, uh, the ideas of prevention, um, if you want to keep from getting malaria, you either need to be vaccinated against it or take drugs against it, or you need to do prevention like sleeping under mosquito nets, putting screens on your homes, etc., to keep mm-hmm. the mosquitoes out and to keep from getting bit. So um, it's kind of that prevention, uh, the same thing I found with wells. I mean, with well water, people needed water. They had wells. They got the water. There was really no consideration about what's the quality of the water and who should and who shouldn't drink that water. So uh, to me, it was the public health aspects of the culture uh, post-war that were lacking probably uh, more so than health care and treatment. That's really interesting. So how much more work needs to be done to solve the water crisis in Liberia? Well, I think much has been done since I was there, and, I, and not necessarily because I was there. One of the reasons, one of the things that's happened is in uh, Monrovia, is they have now reinstituted much of the public water system that had been destroyed by the war. When I was there, uh, less than 20% of the of the city, and that's a city of about a million people, less than 20% of the people had access to public water. Now, my understanding is that number is up over 80%. 
And so some of the wells that I would have sampled when I was there a few years ago uh, are probably no longer being used as drinking water sources. Uh, they probably are used for washing and for other kinds of, of things. But, but public water is now available to much of Monrovia. But one of the areas that's not available is West Point, which is the most impoverished area. And so some of the concerns that I raised uh, there in terms of public health uh, had to be I had to be, have to have been uh, tackled not by government building programs, but by some of the not-for-profit organizations that minister to the people there. So, what were some of the non-profit organizations? Well, the Roman Catholic Church uh, had a large clinic in uh, West Point, which is again one of the most impoverished and overpopulated areas, and so they did uh, basic treatment, basic prevention for public health. They had a, a very high quality well that they allowed to be used uh, in some cases, uh, certainly by the patients and the doctors and all who were providing care. Uh, the United Methodist Church had a very large contingent of, there were some churches in West Point and they were building a school when I was there. That school has now been completed. Students at West Point now have the opportunity to go to that school and they also installed a well following you know, the parameters I, I suggested for them to help ensure that they had high quality water. And so that, that well is, is used in the community now, especially for um, making infant formula and for folks who are sick or, or may have other diseases that are, are chronic uh, and, and you know, contaminated well water is not something maybe their, their bodies can adapt to. And so certainly everyone in West Point can't use just one or two wells. Um, other wells are present, but those two high quality wells I think are very important as uh, they minister to that community. So when you were testing the water, what did you test for in the water and what did these pollutants mean? Okay, um, here in America, uh, in rural areas where people have wells, uh, the two things that are tested for as part of an initial test of well water quality is you test for nitrogen. And when you test for nitrogen, that's an indicator of two primary things, uh, nitrates and nitrites in the water. And so you test for total nitrogen, but that indicates the presence of nitrates and nitrites. Nitrates and nitrites are often found as a breakdown product of urine. Uh, so in, in rural areas of America, where there's a lot of livestock, uh, livestock waste can affect well water. And uh, so that's something that we look for in wells. The other thing we look for in wells is uh, coliform bacteria. Uh, and, and in particular, fecal coliform bacteria. And so fecal coliform bacteria are bacteria that are present in, in human and animal waste, uh, fecal waste, that after rains can percolate into soil and migrate into groundwater and then find themselves in wells. So these are two things that in America we, we test for regularly in, in, in wells. And so in going to Liberia, I felt that those, those types of contaminants would be a good starting point to look at whether these drinking water wells in Liberia were impacted by either human or animal waste such that people might be in a position uh, to getting an outbreak of a disease like cholera or other diseases that are spread by what we call the fecal oral route. Um, nitrogen 
uh, in, in, in water, especially for young children, can cause uh, a disorder called blue baby syndrome, where it's called methemoglobinemia. And it's the idea that uh, the nitrogen negatively affects the infant's ability to carry oxygen. And so in America, we had trouble with that uh, in the pioneer days in areas where there were a lot of livestock and, and few wells. And so um, just because we fixed that problem here in America doesn't mean it's not present in other parts of the world mm -hmm. where wells can be contaminated. So those were the things I looked for, and those were the reasons why I chose them. Okay. So, had you done any work with your with um, water prior to your visit in Liberia? Well, yes, I've been a public health professional for several decades, and drinking water quality is something that we look as a, we have a role in. And uh, in in Illinois, where I'm from, uh, certainly much of the population is found in urban centers, but there is a good portion of the population in Illinois who gets their drinking water from private wells in rural areas. And so that is something that's part of, the, of what a public health professional does in their, has in their toolbox, so to speak, is knowledge about uh, proper sanitation and drinking water quality when it comes to wells. So I was able simply to transfer that experience to Liberia certainly a different cultural, uh, different environmental setting, but the principles are the same. So before you arrived, how did you prepare for your visit to Liberia? Well, I read up a lot on it. Um, I knew some people through church who were Liberian refugees from the Civil War. And so I talked to them. I said, you know, what was it like when you left? Uh, what do you hear that it's like now? Um, we had lots of long conversations about that. Um, so so I, I also read, um, there are websites put out by the Department of State and by the U.S. military that, that cost, I don't want to say cautions, but advises people that going into particular countries of the world, what kinds of things they should be aware of. Uh, I also spoke with uh, the people from the United Methodist Church who I was going to travel with. They had been to Liberia a few times before, certainly to install wells many years earlier, but then also uh, more recently for other activities. And so I, I just did as much as I could to read and talk to people to prepare myself. Um, if, if I may, I'll just say that medically, there are certain things one has to do before they go to Liberia. Uh, I made sure that I was up on all of my vaccinations. Um, because I'd already had measles as a kid, I didn't have to have a measles vaccine. But I did have to get uh, vaccinated for hepatitis A, uh, typhoid fever, uh, yellow fever, and then I also took um, medication for malaria prevention. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I had to get I had to get vaccinated and, and and prepared my body prepared in that way too before I went, and that needed to be done weeks in advance because you have to have time for your body's immune system to, to react to it before you actually go. Before you arrived, did people know that there was, their water was contaminated, or were they unaware of this? I think they were suspicious, um, but, I, but they didn't know, because certainly their wells hadn't been tested. But I, I do think that there were people in West Point who had legitimate concerns. Uh, as I walked through the community, there would be little signs painted on the wall about, you know, don't pee here, you know, don't poo-poo here, mm -hmm. use. <laughs> a latrine, you know, things like that. So they were obviously aware that, you know, 
depositing your waste in places that were improper were not was not only you know something someone could step in, but is something that that could contaminate well water. And so there was awareness, but certainly not a knowledge of, of, of whether the wells were contaminated. And I think I think one of the most important things I was able to get across uh, through Reverend Sam, who worked in that community, and others at the Catholic clinic was to help identify which wells had high levels of nitrogen so that the word could be put out that if you're making baby formula don't use those wells Mm. did people ever hesitate to let religious organizations build wells due to opposing religious beliefs in other words did one area that was dominated by a specific religion ever prevent another religion from building a well in their territory my experience was no um, I think that Liberia was such a needy country right after the war that those barriers simply didn't exist. Uh, if someone was willing to come in and assist and do so in a helpful and, and loving fashion, I don't think they cared whether they were Roman Catholic, uh, whether they were Lutheran, whether they were Muslim, whether they were Hindu. If they came in and they were helping, they were willing to help to partner with those individuals and, and help and receive that help. Um, I had an experience while I was there of two wells that were very close to each other. One well was was um, uh, uh, was in, under the auspices of a Muslim organization. Another well was under the auspices of a United Methodist organization. And once I provided them their sample results, they conferred with each other and, and made a plan for how they were going to use their water in the future based on those sample results. And so uh, I simply did not see those kinds of barriers uh, in my experience. What water did you drink when you were there? Yeah, well, um, we, we drank bottled water that was uh, processed by the, uh, there's actually a Pepsi uh, factory there in Monrovia. And so the water was bottled uh, by them. The reason for that is when you come into another area and, well, let me just put it this way. My digestive system is used to eating food and drinking water here in the United States. The microorganisms that naturally live in my digestive system are used to the microorganisms that I am regularly exposed to in my current environment. When you go to a different environment and there are different microorganisms present, it throws off your digestive system once you're exposed to that. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the concept of what's called Montezuma's Revenge, uh, but there's a protozoan that's present in Mexico in drinking water in many places. And so if you go to Mexico and you drink well water there, and it doesn't mean that well water's bad, it just has different microorganisms in it than what we're used to, you know, where, where we're exposed. And so it can throw off your digestive system. And it often can make you sick, give you diarrhea, and, you know, put you out of commission for a few days. And so since we really only had a few weeks to do the work we were going to do, we didn't want to be out of commission because of an illness. And so the United Methodist Church always provides bottled water for drinking and cooking purposes for their mission teams when they come to Liberia, simply because they don't want them to get sick. Now, if I was a person who was going to go to Liberia and be there for a full year, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) I I might start to expose myself to drinking water and other foods there so that I could slowly acclimate to it. And then I don't have that, that I wouldn't have to deal with that. But for a short term mission work, it doesn't make sense to spend uh, several days, you know, on the pot, so to speak, because of being exposed to, to drinking water that you're not used to.
Yes, I agree with you. This is more of a personal question. Sure. But, um, did you see anything that changed your thoughts and opinions on the world? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, I, I don't know where to start. Um, I had never seen the devastation of a culture as a result of war. This is something we're so isolated from here in America. I mean, after 9-11, the people of New York certainly experienced uh, what happens as a result of an act of terror or an act of war. Uh, and, and, and they were able to use their resources and our country's resources to, to clean up and rebuild. And in a sense, that's what I was seeing in Liberia. Um, I had read in the, you know, in the American history books about the period of reconstruction after the U.S. Civil War had devastated many of the southern states. Uh, but but it's, for us to try to wrap our brains around that is just really difficult. Uh, it opened new insights to me when I saw Liberia, saw them reconstructing, trying to use what resources they had to re redo their infrastructure and how to patch things together in the short term until the long term things could get done. Um, there was just a, a, a tremendous amount of, of faith in each other and in their God and in their community to that they would prevail uh, and, and that they would overcome. And that was encouraging and, and just so enlightening. Um, something I certainly had not been experienced because of the luxuries that we take for granted here in the West. That's really interesting. If you could go back to Liberia, what else would you do there? Well, I would go back. I would love to go back. Um, but I think what I would like to do is if I could set it up through the United Methodist Church or any other group that, that has a good foothold in Liberia, I would like to work and train alongside public health professionals in the country. Uh, when I was there before, the public health infrastructure was just slowly starting to be built. We're now, a few years later, I believe that there are more public health professionals, there are more public health practitioners who are doing work within the country. And I think that things that I have done here might be helpful to them. And I think things that they have experienced would be very instructive to me. And so if I were to go back, I don't think I would do sampling per se. I think I would want to work hand in hand with some of the public health professionals, maybe do some training and at the same time do some learning. So do you have anything else that you think is important to mention about your project? Um, I would simply say that one of the things that I thought was very interesting about Liberia is that, and, and I think this is true of many places that, that we go to, and, and I think it's a lesson to be learned by all of us in the West, is that we must be respectful of other people's cultures when we enter them. Uh, we can't go in with the idea that, hi, I'm here from America and I'm here to help you. Um, that's just such a, a wrong attitude to yeah. take when you're working with other cultures. And so um, I was very blessed to have a man named Sam Corshi, who was a uh, United Methodist pastor who served as my ambassador. He went with me and, and, and took me around to all the various places I went to do the sampling. And because I was with Sam, I was cool. You know, it's just, it, it's just, just something about if I had gone in there by myself or maybe several of us as a team from the West and we were approaching these uh, people uh, in, in West Point especially on our own, I think we would have been met with perhaps 
permission and maybe some resistance. But because I had Sam and because I had learned some of the cultural things like the Liberian handshake, all right, so when I go to, it, you know, Sam would say, oh, hello, this is, this is John. John is the one who is the steward of this well. John, this is Mr. Ken. That's how he would introduce me. This is Mr. Ken. He's, <laughs> fr- he's from the Methodist Church in America, and he would like to sample your well. And, and John would reach out his hand to me, and I would reach out my hand, and we would shake hands, and I would shake the Liberian handshake. And the fact that I knew it and was able to do it would just put a smile on John's face or any other person's face. And they're like, oh, oh, you understand. You know, it would be kind of how they would reply. And so um, those simple, cultural, respectful things make such a difference when working with people in other places. And, and I guess I would say that whether it's whatever you, it is that you might be doing, uh, working in ministry or in aid to other places or even just visiting, uh, be respectful and 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 uh, meet people where they are, and I, I think that's a good lesson for all of us. I think that's a, a good lesson that um, you learned from your trip. It's a good moral in life to have. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Runkle, for joining us on this podcast today. We really appreciate your elaborate answers as they taught us so much about water scarcity and how it affects people and the environment worldwide. Thank you for tuning in today. And remember, geography is everything and everything is geography.